the plan of redemption was in place long before man even needed to be redeemed. It was in place before God even created the world. And you can find that in Revelation uh, chapter 13, verse 8. It says that Jesus was the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth. So before we screwed everything up, God had a plan. That is good news to know that I serve a God who has some foresight. I serve a God who's not surprised by anything. I serve a God who knows uh, um, and has a plan in case things go wrong. I'm really glad um, that he has prepared something. And all I have to do is just trust him because I know he has it under control. Amen. So Jesus was slain before the foundations of the earth. Um, that raises this question was was Adam really destined to sin from the very beginning? Well, I'm getting really deep. Uh, the answer is not so simple. I would say it's yes, and I would say it's also no. And let me just give you my opinion. Every time I teach, I like to give you Jonathanology. So it's not theology. You're not going to find it in some book. It's just my opinion. Take it or leave it, but this is really what I believe. Okay, so eventually mankind would have fallen because the fact that God gave us free will, correct? So he gave us the right to choose. So whether they would have fallen in the garden about an hour later or years later, eventually mankind would have, ha would have fallen, right, disobeyed God, fallen into sin. So there would have needed to be a plan of redemption. So in that way, man was destined to sin because of their free will. Does this make sense to anybody? Hopefully I'm not getting too deep on you, right? So this is what I believe, though. This is truly what I believe, that the very plan, God saw Adam and Eve, and his desire was for them to choose life. His desire was communion. The plan was to walk with them in the garden. The plan was not for them to sin. He wanted perfect communion, but it wouldn't be just. It would not be fair if they were just robots, Right? They would be slaves. And we'll talk about this later. Jesus died. So we would not be slaves, which means we have the right to choose. So God is omnipotent, which means all-knowing. But that does not negate our free will. And I will tell you, this is what I think about when I, when I think about this subject. It helps me sleep at night. Right? It helps me. Uh, hopefully it will build your faith a little bit. I think of life as this big game of chess. Okay? I hate chess. But I love my life, okay? I hate chess, but I love my life. So stay with me for a second. God's omniscience makes him like the smartest chess player that there ever was, all right? Um, I'm not very smart. I'll stick to checkers, okay? But uh, God understands chess. And when you're playing this game of chess with your life, God understands. He knows every possible move that every piece can make on the board. And he knows the consequence of moving each piece on the board, right? He can be playing that game of chess with you and say, hey, if you do that, your rooks are gone. And look at you, you're just being reckless, man. You obviously, your pawns have no meaning to you, no value to you, right? And if you do that, you're going to expose your queen. And guess what? Checkmate, you're in check right now. It's about to be checkmate. The game's about to be over. Okay, so he knows every possible move that can be made, but he leaves the decision, the choice up to us to move those pieces how we see fit. That makes sense? Again, this is just my opinion, but I really believe that God doesn't really know what you're going to do until it's in your heart to do it, and he understands the consequences and the outcomes of your decisions. He knows all the moves the chess piece can make from point A, start of your life, to point B, the end of your life. That was really deep. I'm sorry. A little bit of a rabbit trail, but what I was saying is that that plan of redemption was in play long before we even needed to be redeemed. So just because he planned for it doesn't mean we don't have a free will. I believe that man is destined to make a choice, and God is prepared for whatever choice that we make, okay? So I don't have time to get into the vastness of redemption, but my goal is to help you understand some basic principles about it because we need to know, we need to know these things. If we don't, we will be living a life of significantly less quality and fullness uh, um, uh, it'll be under what Jesus paid for us to live at. There's a level that Jesus paid for you to live at, and if you don't fully understand redemption, you will be living down here, right? Life is like this. I want to be like this. Amen? Living our lives to the fullest. So this is what we're going to go into tonight. 
What is redemption? Okay, the definition of redemption. What are we redeemed from and what are we redeemed to? Can you guys stick with me for that? All right. So if you're taking notes, the word redeem in the American Heritage Dictionary means this, to recover ownership of something by paying a specified sum. To recover ownership of something by paying a specified sum. So when I was younger, my dad played guitar, and he had this beautiful Alvarez acoustic electric guitar. It had beautiful inlays on the fretboard that were made of abalone, and around the sound hole it was made of abalone. It was beautiful. It sounded good. It looked good. And for some reason, we decided to sell it to a pawn shop, which I don't know why we did that. But we, I think we were going to get another guitars. My dad had like seven guitars and he left a few to me, so now I have like three guitars. I used to have five, I gave two away. Um, but anyways, we went to the pawn shop and we decided to pawn it off at a, at a fair price, uh, which what we thought was a fair price to the shop in Rifle. And uh, I remember a few weeks later, I began to regret my decision. And I went back into the pawn shop to see if I could redeem this guitar, buy it back for a specified sum. Only problem was is the pawn shop owner marked it up like a lot. It was kind of unfair. It made me shed a tear or two. And I thought, hmm, and I had to make a decision. Do I value this thing enough to redeem it? And unfortunately, this story does not end well because I walked out of that pawn shop thinking this guitar is too expensive. I did not think the price justified the guitar. I did not think it was worth what the price was, therefore I did not value it enough to redeem it, right? You see the value of something is actually determined by what someone is willing to pay for it, right? And God didn't look down at the cost of mankind's redemption and cringe. That's, that's a good thing. He didn't look at the cost of mankind's redemption and cringe at the price tag. Listen, the wages of sin were death, okay? The wages of sin are death. Jesus paid the specified sum with his own life to buy us back, to recover ownership. Does that make sense to everybody? Recovering ownership, okay? So there's a story I'd like to share with you. It's from uh, Billy Brim's book. It's called The Blood and the Glory. And it's a very good book about the blood of Jesus and redemption. And this story really illustrates this point well. I love the picture it paints of redemption. So let me read it for you says, a father and his small son worked together and built a toy boat. They whittled out its hull, they painted it red, and attached a white sail. Then they enjoyed many happy hours sailing in the river, running through their village. Somehow the father died. When the boy sailed the boat alone, it brought back good memories until one day a big wind caught the little sail and carried the boat down the river faster than the boy could run after it. And out to sea it went. The boy missed his boat so much for the longest time that it was gone. At about Thanksgiving time, he was overjoyed to see his little boat appear in the toy shop window. He ran inside and said, hey, that's my little boat in the window. My father and I made it and it was lost to the sea. The shop owner said the little boat was brought in by a fisherman who found it. And I'll let you have it for the cost or for what it cost me. The boy had no money, but he went to work. He cut wood, he sold papers, he did everything he could to think of, that he could think of. Each day he counted his money, and each day he held his breath as he passed by the toy shop window to see if it was still there. And at last, on Christmas Eve, he had enough money. But had someone bought the little boat for a gift? How thankful he was to see it still in the window. When he came out of the shop, he clasped the little boat to his chest and he cried little boat little boat you are twice mine i made you and i bought you so that's how we are to god we are twice his he made us and he bought us right not with corruptible things like silver or gold but with the precious blood of jesus amen so I've given you the English definition of redeem, which means to recover ownership of something by paying a specified sum, or we can simply put it this, to, 
put it like this, to buy back, okay? In the English language, redeem literally or basically means to buy back, okay? But um, the English language has got really shallow definitions, right? Um, it's not a very broad and expansive language. It comes from really nice languages like Latin and Greek, but really in English it's just, eh. So there's actually four words for redeem or redeemed in the Greek language, and I would love to share them with you because I think it gives us a full picture of redemption, what I'm talking about. I'm going to take another drink real quick. All right, are we ready? First Greek word for redeem or redeemed is the Greek word agarozo, and I'll spell it out for you in English, A-G-A-R-O-Z-O, agarozo, and this means to buy in the marketplace, and more deeply defined, it means to buy, to purchase. This refers to buying and acquiring possessions as in the marketplace and to setting a slave free through purchase often to God's purchase, redemption of sinners. So this word was used in the buying and selling of people in the slave market. Back then, if you were to go buy a slave, this would be the word that was used. You go into the market and you would buy a slave, agarozo. Okay, Revelation 5.9 says this. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed, Agarozo, went into the marketplace. You've redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on this earth. I want you to hold on to those two words, kings and priests, because we'll mention them a little bit later. But that word in that scripture, redeemed, is the word Agarozo. So Jesus left heaven and he entered the slave market. And not only that, but Philippians 2.7 says that he emptied himself of all of his deity and he actually became a slave for us so he could set us free from slavery. Amen? And this bring, he, he, he rescued us out of slavery, which brings me to my second Greek word for redeemed. Number two is the word ex-agarozo. So E-X-A-G-A-R-O-Z-O. Same word, but it has a prefix attached to it. The word ex just means out, okay? So this word means out of the marketplace. Ex agarozo. Romans 6, 16 says this. It says that whatever we give ourselves to, I'm just going to paraphrase it. Whatever we give ourselves to, we become a slave of, whether a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness. And that's a really important concept to understand because a lot of times we think sin is just something we come to and from as we will. Okay, I like to, I used to tell my youth students this, slave, or, uh, sin is not a vending machine, okay? You can't go up to a vending mach machine and say, hey, I'm really desiring some gossip right now. What is that in the machine? Oh, B7, thank you for the gossip Oh, that's so good. You know what? I'll come. Thank you, vending machine. I'll come back when I want to indulge a little bit more. No, in all reality, that vending machine, as soon as you push B7, it eats you and you become its slave, right? It's not something that you can just indulge in and then leave and then come back to it. I'm making my camera guys work. Um, what did God tell uh, Cain before, you know, he, he was conspiring to commit murder, Right? He said, listen, you know the right thing to do, but if you don't, sin is lying at the door and its desire is to have you. Okay? Sin is not this passive thing. Once you give yourself to it, you become a slave of it. All right? Whatever you give yourself to, you will be a slave of. All of us has, have given into the temptation of sin, which means missing the mark or disobeying God, at some point in our lives, we would be enslaved to sin. Am I, am I bearing witness with anybody? In the, or if you might be perfect, okay? Maybe you were able to, of your own might and will, not partake of a certain sin for the rest of your life. Guess what? You would still be a slave to the consequences of that sin, which is separation from God. Separation. So, 
Jesus entered into the slave market. He paid the ransom with his own blood, and he brought us out, ex agorozo, of the market and into righteousness. So a beautiful, um, a beautiful Testament, uh, Old Testament example of this is actually found in the book of Hosea, and it's the story of Hosea and Gomer. Please read this book. It's so beautiful, and it's a perfect uh, depiction of the redemptive love of God. Listen, you need to be reading the whole Bible, okay? There's so much amazing stuff. If you're just chilling in Psalms and Proverbs and maybe a little bit in Romans, you're missing out, okay? Read the full Bible. If you don't understand it, go talk to someone about it. Pray about it. God will bring you some revelation. But there's so many beautiful things in the Old Testament that points to the New Testament. Listen, the Old Testament is like a type and a shadow. It all points to Jesus. And then you get to where Jesus is and everything points back to him. Everything's about Jesus. Everything you read in the Bible is about Jesus. It's amazing. So I will kind of give you the story of this. So it's the story of Hosea and Gomer. So Hosea is a prophet in Israel at the time, and uh, Israel is committing adultery against God. They are serving other gods. They are worshiping idols. They are actually committing adultery. They are turning away from him, and God is mad. So God actually decides, you know what? I am going to express my grief. I'm going to express my anger in a perfect illustration that everyone can understand. He says, hey, Hosea, I want you to go marry a prostitute. Go marry this prostitute named Gomer. And it's actually going to be a representation of how Israel is committing adultery against me. And I'm mad at them, but I love them. And so there's this, like, really iffy relationship going on between Israel and God. And he says, hey, Hosea, go marry Gomer. So um, he goes into the land. He finds Gomer. He uh, marries her, even though she's a prostitute. And actually... This movie seems pretty wholesome. It looks like it's going to have a good ending. I might take my kids to it. Listen, they have kids. They're living life. You know, they're living their best life. They're having a good time. I'm like, you know what? This is working. <laughs> you know, I don't know if this is good life example. This is good life advice. Don't, don't marry someone like that. But in this case, it's working out. But actually, um, you know, it takes a turn from, for the worst. And Gomer begins to desire her old life once again, the the life of a harlot, the life of a prostitute. And she desires it so much that eventually one day she leaves her kids, she leaves her husband, and she goes back into her old life that she so badly desired. She goes back. And at this point, I would not be, like, surprised if Hosea just called it quits. He just said, you know what, God? You proved your point. You had me marry a harlot, and guess what? She uh, began to be a harlot again. I couldn't, you know, couldn't see that coming. Uh, so she leaves, and, uh, you know, I think Hosea, if I was Hosea, I'd say, God, let me lick my wounds, and I'll just be single for the rest of my life, because that was a mess. But God, in his infinite wisdom in chapter 3, he tells Hosea, hey, go and love again. Find Gomer again, and make her your wife another time. Another time. Go and love again. This was showing God's heart for Israel. Even though they kept turning from him, he still loved them. And he didn't say this, hey, just try and love her. I know she's crazy. Just try and love her. No, he says, love her like I love Israel. Because I, my heart is so turned to them. Even though they're departing from me, I love them so fiercely. I'm in love with my children. And I want you to be that way towards Gomer. That is the unconditional love of God on display right there. You and me turn from him daily in the decisions that we make. And we don't deserve love. We don't deserve his love, but he continues to love us and to love again and again and again because it's unconditional love. It's the love of the Father. So Hosea, listen, he's got to go marry her once again, but guess where she's at? She's where the prostitutes are. She's in the slave market. She's not some free woman. She's actually a slave, and some procurer is selling her to other men and getting rewards, getting money from it. So she's owned. He has to go and find her. Hosea goes into the slave market, Agarozo, purchases her out of slavery, ex-Agarozo, and makes her his wife once again. He redeemed Gomer. And in Matthew chapter 9, this is beautiful. Jesus is eating 
at Matthew's house. Matthew is a tax collector, and they invited a bunch of other tax collectors, and the Bible says chief sinners, like the best of sinners. Don't raise your hand if that's you. The best of sinners. And they're all eating at Matthew's house, and the Pharisees are making a big deal about it because they're like, you know, you, if you say you're the son of God, you should be hanging out with the righteous people like me. And uh, God, Jesus did not like that. When he heard what they were saying, he gave them what in today's terms would be called a mic drop moment. Okay? I love this. So when Jesus heard what they were saying in Matthew chapter 9, verse 12, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick and I love this part. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repent. When he said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, he's quoting the book of Hosea. Listen, Jesus came into this earth to find the gomers, the sinners, the lowest of the low, and show them mercy. That's you and me. Come on. So that's us. We were the outcasts. We were the sinner. We were the lowest of the low. And just like Hosea, Jesus called us by name. He went into the slave market, shed his blood, brought us out of the slave market. And he raised us up with him and he made us righteous once again. Listen, the name Hosea means salvation. The name Gomer means uh, completion. And what did Jesus say on the cross? Some of his final words, it is finished. Come on. Jesus redeemed us, and that work is finished. It's final. It's set in stone. You are redeemed. So I hope you're starting to see how beautiful this subject of redemption really is. Um, we're on to the third Greek word for redeemed, and that is the word lutrosis, which is L-U-T-R-O-S-I-S. Lutrosis means this. It means a ransoming. It comes from the root word lutro, which means to pay the full ransom price. To pay the full ransom price. Hebrews chapter 9, um, verse 12, says this. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption or eternal Lutrosis. You see, before Jesus, humanity could not pay the full ransom price. Uh, the blood of innocent animals was like a very distant second. And what they would do is that they would have to sacrifice those innocent animals, shed their blood. They would actually go into the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, in the most holy place, there is the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of that is the mercy seat. And what they would do is they take the blood of the innocent animal and they would sprinkle it on that seat and God would show them mercy. And it would pay for their sins for only one year. So they were on like this temporary debt forgiveness program with God. It didn't really work super well. They had to keep doing it over and over again because the price was innocent blood, but it wasn't innocent animal. That was just a substitute. It had to be an innocent person. And before Jesus, nobody was innocent, okay? And that's part of the reason why the plan of redemption, Jesus coming into the earth, took so long. Going back to free will, people had to willingly choose to take part of God's plan and bring Jesus into the earth. That's why it took a long time. But thank God it happened. Jesus came. So um, Jesus came on the scene, and what he did is he offered his own innocent, perfect, precious blood. He walked into the holy place, which is in heaven, the throne room of heaven, and he said, hey, I'm only doing this one time, okay? And he poured his blood upon the mercy seat and he obtained eternal redemption, lutrosis for us. He paid the full ransom price. Amen? Going back to, um, oh, we're on to word four. The fourth Greek word for redeemed is apolutrosis, okay? It's, again, it's a, another word that's like a conjunction. There's a prefix in front of it, apo means from, okay? So this word apolutrosis means buying back from, repurchasing, winning back what was previously forfeited or lost. Going back to Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption. That word is apolutrosis, through his blood. So his blood purchased and bought back what was previously lost. 
We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So what was previously forfeited? We got to go back to the garden once again. Adam and Eve, when they chose to partake of sin, right, they forfeited what? They forfeited their sonship to be sons and daughters. They forfeited perfect communion with God. Before sin, they could walk with God you know, nothing over their face. They could be right with God. They weren't going to die because of his holiness because in that state of being, they were holy. They were sons. They were daughters. They were in perfect communion with God. That's what was forfeited. That's what was lost. Okay? So um, Adam and Eve, they weren't originally created to be slaves. They were created to be sons and daughters. So the blood of Jesus redeemed us, apolutrosis, and restored us back to our original state, sons and daughters. Galatians 4, 7 says this, Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir of God through Christ Jesus. Man, amen. So let me recap. You've got the first word, agorozo, which means to go into the marketplace. And then you've got ex agorozo, which means to come out of the marketplace. Then you have lutrosis, which is uh, to pay the full ransom price. And then the fourth word, apolutrosis, which means to, uh, to purchase back what was previously forfeited or to restore back to an original state. So when you look at those four Greek words, doesn't that help you kind of just grasp redemption a little bit more? It's not just, oh, to buy back. No, Jesus went into the marketplace, right? He entered the slave market. He became a slave himself. He paid the full ransom price. He rescued us out, and he restored us back to our original state of being a son or being a daughter of the Most High God. Amen. That's a good place for me to take a drink. Are you getting anything? Okay. So um, we just identified what redemption was. Remember the, the overview of what I'm talking about is what is redemption? What are we redeemed to? What are we redeemed from? Okay. So I want to talk to you briefly about the threefold nature of redemption. Galatians 3, 13 and 14 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So the threefold nature of your redemption is found in this verse. Number one part of your redemption is Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Okay? Um, the curse being found in Deuteronomy, it's basically the consequences of breaking God's laws. Poverty, sickness, death. Go read it. It's a bunch of terrible things. Okay? Okay? And, but you are redeemed from that. The blood of Jesus redeemed you from the curse of the law. Number two, Christ has redeemed us to the blessing. The blessing. Verse 14, he hung on the cross so that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles. That's you and me. Okay? Galatians 3.29 in uh, the New Living Translation says this. And now that you belong to Christ... You are true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. This is good news. So what is Abraham's bless blessing? You can find it in Genesis chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord has said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. Here's where the blessing starts. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's seven blessings that belong to us. If we are found in Jesus, we belong to his family. We, but we are sons and daughters of Jesus, but we are also in the lineage of Abraham, and we get to be partakers of that blessing. Amen? The blessing of Abraham belongs to us. Here's the third part of the threefold nature of your redemption. Christ has redeemed us so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. I mean, I'm like teaching tonight. I'm not really like, is this good? I'm like, I feel like a teacher. Okay, 
Abraham, he didn't earn the promise through working really hard. Right? He received it through faith. And the Bible says that uh, Abram, or Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him as, or to, as for righteousness. In other words, uh, uh, I almost said Noah. His name is not Noah. Abraham earned, he didn't earn anything. Jonathan, slow down. Abraham received right standing with God through faith. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> through his faith and not by his works. So um, it works the same way for us, right? I do not earn my salvation. I receive it by putting my faith in the blood of Jesus that has purchased my redemption. When I, when I put my faith in the blood of Jesus, when I declare him as Lord, what happens? The spirit of promise brings me into a newness of life. That's salvation. John, uh, John chapter 6, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He says, hey, in order to be born again, this is what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about being born of your mom twice. That's not, that can't happen. He says, you got to be born again and to be born of the spirit. So Jesus, uh, you must be born of the spirit to experience eternal life. So not only does the spirit of God baptize me in the waters of salvation, but he makes his home in me. Romans 8 uh, uh, verse 9 says that if we're born again, that the spirit of God lives in us. And he's not just there putting his feet up. He has a purpose. All right. The spirit of God, when you are born again, he comes and he lives on the inside of you. And he's not there just taking up space. Okay. The spirit of God lives in you. He teaches you. He guides you into all truth. He tells you things to come. He comforts you. He brings you into remembrance. He convicts you of your righteous nature in Christ that was purchased through redemption. He glorifies Jesus. He testifies to Jesus. And he also, he empowers us. According to Acts 1.8, when the Spirit of God comes upon you, what shall happen? You shall receive power. So the Spirit of God will empower you. And if we ask, he'll give us our heavenly prayer language. And he prays through us. He prays the perfect will of God. We call this praying in tongues or praying in the spirit. So that's the threefold nature of your redemption. We are redeemed from the curse. We are redeemed to the blessing. And so that we can receive the spirit of God, first of all, through salvation. And secondly, through the inward ministry of his Holy Spirit, what he does when he's living on the inside of us. Listen, the Holy Spirit will make you look smart. It'll make you sound smart. He will, he will uh, um, bring you to a level that you could not be on your own when you, put a tr when you put your trust in the Spirit of God. So that's what our redemption is. It's what we're redeemed to and what we're redeemed from. Amen? Glory to God. Okay, I hope this is bringing a, a greater revelation and understanding to you because um, if you don't understand the value of your redemption and what you've been redeemed from, you will be tricked into living a life that's void of those benefits. You will be tricked into living a life under condemnation. You will be tricked into living far below the level that Jesus has called you to live at. And I'll venture to say this, that the quality of your life is directly tied to your revelation of redemption. The quality of your life is directly tied to your understanding, your revelation of what Jesus did for you on the cross, what the blood of Jesus is for, what he purchased you from, and what he purchased you to, redemption. If you want a good quality of life, you better start understanding the power of the blood of Jesus and what he's redeemed you from. Amen? So I don't want to be tricked into living a life significantly less than what was bought for me. Um, I'll share with you a, a story. Actually, it's a, a scientific study that um, scientists did with um, a bunch of fleas, okay? So fleas have this um, ability to jump really high and jump really far. I should not stand over here. Am I still in the light? Okay. They can jump really high. They can jump really far. You can be walking your dog on a trail, and a stupid flea will jump from a bush all the way under your dog, and it's not good news. Um, but they jump really high. They jump really far. So what these scientists did is they took hundreds of fleas and they put them in a glass jar, and they left them undisturbed with the lid on for three days. And what they observed is that during the course of those three days, the fleas jumped thousands of times, and they kept hitting the lid, hitting themselves on the lid, just colliding with the lid, knocking themselves out probably. 
And eventually, they were tired of colliding with that lid that they adapted and they adjusted the height of their jump to be just below the lid. Because the nature of a flea is to jump. You can't tell a flea not to jump. You can't tell a flea anything. But a flea is going to jump, all right? And so they adapted their behavior to jump just below the barrier of the lid. The scientists came back three days later. They took the lid off. And to their surprise, the fleas did not jump out. They were trained. They set their behavior that was uh, the barrier of the lid. Even though they were free, they would never jump higher than that, that top level where the lid was. And they set their behavior for the rest of their lives. And they found this out too, that those fleas, they would reproduce and their offspring would follow the same patterns of behavior. They were trapped by an invisible barrier. That makes sense? They would never jump beyond the level that was set by the lid. Even though they were technically free, they weren't. They could never jump beyond the jar. So God is calling us to live a life beyond the jar. Listen, redemption took that lid off. And if you let the devil, if you allow him, he will trick you into living a life that's in the jar still when God's called you to come up and to come out, right? So the enemy is trying to deceive us into living in the jar even though we're free because in all reality, the devil knows more about what happened on the cross and the details of redemption. He knows that more than most believers. And he uses our ignorance against us. I don't want to be ignorant of these things, right? So he'll present accusations against us, hoping that we do not know the law. The law I'm talking about is the New Testament law, the law of grace, okay? He doesn't want you to know that. Revelation 12.10 says this, that the devil is the accuser of the brethren. The accuser of the brethren. The Greek word for accuser is the word kategoros, which means prosecutor. It means prosecutor. It's a legal term. So um, um, the Bible is actually filled with these legal terms, and it paints this, this picture of, of a courtroom. So life um, in the spiritual sense is like a series of courtroom experiences for each and every one of us. So Brittany, my wife, me and her, um, I'm not ashamed to admit this from time to time. We like to get a little wrapped up in a TV show. I mean, hey, don't throw any stones. And uh, the one that we're watching right now, I won't tell you the name of it. <laughs> but uh, it's all about the courtroom. It's not law and order, okay? Um, and it's, <laughs> it's all about legal proceedings, the details of the law, and it follows a, the, a couple of lawyers and it's so interesting in all these parallels that it makes to our spiritual life and the parallels that actually we find in the Bible. The Bible is filled with these legal terms. And uh, it paints this really great picture. Um, so I'm sure you've seen a movie or two or, or a TV show where you, you, you have that courtroom scene in which a judge or a jury is, is getting ready to give the final verdict, right? The innocence or the guilt of a defendant. Um, the next words that come out of the, the, the judge's mouth or the head juror's mouth is going to decide that person's fate. They will either be innocent and they'll walk free of their crimes or they'll be guilty and they'll face the penalty, the sentence that the judge gives, right? And you're just sitting there just wondering what is going to happen. So as a Christian, you at this very moment right now, even though you're sitting in church, you are being called by the devil, the prosecutor, to take a defensive stand against his accusations, right? He, it, the Bible says, Revelation 12, 10, it says that he's the accuser of the brethren, and it goes on to say that he brings those accusations day and night. He's doing it constantly. You can't get rid of him. He's always trying to accuse you of a crime that really you don't have to pay for, okay? So you are being, uh, uh, you are being, uh, accused by the devil you have to take a defensive stand against his accusations his goal is to have you plead guilty and to be condemned okay the word condemned has two meanings the first meaning of condemned is sentenced to punishment the second meaning of condemned is unfit for use unfit for use he wants you to pay for a crime that actually has already been paid for and he wants to convince you that you are unfit for use, that you are unworthy of love, that you are unworthy of 
Acquittal, which just, that's literally what right or justified means. Justified means acquittal. He wants you to think that you're unworthy of acquittal. He wants you to believe that you have no value or usefulness to God. That he wants to condemn you, which means he wants you to believe you are unfit for use. All of those are lies. So when you enter the courtroom, there are many things, many people, they all have certain roles. And I'm not going to get into all of them. I'd love to just highlight just a few, okay? And I'll say this too. This is just a plug for our uh, legal system. Think about it what you want. You might be happy with it. You might be upset with it. But if you uh, detest jury duty, there's something wrong with you, okay? Listen, jury duty is a privilege, and it's an honor. We get to be a part of the justice system. We get to have a part to play in deciding what is right and what is just. So next time you get called for jury duty, think of it as an honor and pray that it doesn't get canceled. Because I've been in jury duty. I've served on a jury and literally, like, besides, like, being saved and my kid being born and maybe Australia, like, being on a jury was, like, one of my favorite things. It was amazing. That's just a personal plug. Sorry, there's not something wrong with you if you don't like jury duty. I'm sorry. Um, but, again, we get so mad about the, the, uh, the government taking our rights from us. This is one thing that we still get to be a part of. You shouldn't detest it. You shouldn't hate it. You shouldn't wish that it's canceled. Be a part of the, the legal process. All right. I'm campaigning, y'all. Um, you can, I have a GoFundMe. Just kidding. Okay. So when you go into the courtroom, I wasn't supposed to say that. <clears throat> All right. When you enter, you see, right when you walk in, probably the first person that you see is the judge if they're, in the, in the ch if they're out of their chambers, right? You see the judge. This person um, is the person who oversees the court proceedings. They execute the law. They issue the sentences on those that are deemed guilty by a jury. There's two types of trials. There's a trial by jury, which means they decide your trial, and there is what's called a bench trial, and that is when the judge gives the verdict of guilt or innocence, and he also gives you the sentence, okay? So his main job is to execute the law. Uh, on one side of the courtroom, you'll see the prosecutor. This person's job is to present a criminal case before the judge against an individual uh, being accused of breaking the law. That's the prosecuting attorney. On the other side, you'll see the defendant and the defense team, right? The defendant is the one being accused of the crime, and they have their defense attorney. The attorney's job is to be an advocate for those that are accused. The defense attorney's job is to plead on their behalf fight for them. Amen? So then you'll have the witness stand. Witnesses on both sides are called to testify and give the details. You can be an eyewitness, which means you witnessed the said crime that's in question. You saw what happened. Or you can be an expert witness, which means that you are an expert in a certain field, and they bring you in to testify of your knowledge and wisdom of what's going on. So witnesses can be called from both sides. They tell what they know about the situation. Okay? So let's paint this picture of the courtroom. We are now in the courtroom of heaven. The devil is bringing an accusation against you. He is the prosecutor. He is the, the accuser of the brethren. Of the brethren. So we get into the courtroom. You sit down. You take your place. It is now time for opening statements. Okay? The prosecutor takes a stand. He clears his voice, and he begins to make his opening statement, which is to tell you every single sin that you've ever committed. It will take hours. It might take days but he is going to tell you every single sin that you ever committed and why you are unworthy and why you should be sentenced to death, right? Um, uh, you know, his, uh, he, uh, he brings these things against you, um, um, and actually, in all reality, you have done these things. You are guilty. The judge asks um, if you'd like to have a witness that takes the stand. So you look over at your, your defense attorney. He whispers in your ear. You say, yeah, I'd like to have a witness take the stand. Um, I'd like to call upon the blood of Jesus. I'd like the blood of Jesus to take the stand. So 1 John 5.8 says that the blood is a witness. Witnesses are expected to speak. Hebrews 12.24, uh, oh, here's the good news. The blood of Jesus has something to say, okay? Hebrews 12.24 says this, And we have come to Jesus who established a new covenant with his blood sprinkled upon the mercy seat, blood that continues to speak from heaven, forgiveness, a better message than Abel's, blood that cries from the earth, justice. So the blood of Jesus testifies of your forgiveness, right? So he goes through all those things as opening statement. You get asked to, 
if you'd like a witness to take the stand, you call upon the blood of Jesus, which says, forgiven. The prosecutor makes another remark. He begins to bring up the law. He begins to bring up the curse of the law, which he's actually referring to Old Testament, but he really hopes that you don't know that, right? Again, you got to understand your redemption. He's bringing up things that are part of the old law, thinking that you're going to bring them into the new law, which really you, have, you, you don't have to follow that anymore. So he hopes that you don't know. He tries to place uh, sickness. He tries to place guilt. He tries to place shame on you. He tries to convince you and the jury that you have no inheritance, that the blessing of Abraham is not really yours. I mean, just look at what this person has done. They can't possibly have all these rights. They can't possibly be uh, uh, in line for this, in type, this type of inheritance. No way, right? The judge looks at you and says, uh, what do you got to say? Uh, and then you stand there and you say, yeah, I'd like to ask another witness to take the stand. And it's actually the witness from before. You should have just had him stay up there. Uh, it's the blood of Jesus. Again, the blood of Jesus, right? So, uh, Your Honor, you know, I'd like to call, call the blood up once again. The blood takes the stand. He declares that Jesus paid the ransom in full, that Jesus set you free from the curse of the law, right? And he was actually made a curse for us. And on that cross, Jesus completely delivered us from the power of the enemy. Every time he brings an accusation up against you, you just continue to call the same witness to the stand, which is the blood of Jesus. Amen. Now, uh, it's time for closing statements. The prosecutor, the devil, just repeats himself again because he's got nothing new. He just is steaming through the years and just begins to re repeat everything that he said. Uh, he gets done. He sits down. And now it's time for the defense's turn to have their closing statements. So, uh. The defense attorney whispers in your ear once again, says, I've got this. In fact, I'm the best closer that there ever was. He begins to stand in front of the judge and the jury, and he says, you know what? I'll use myself an example. Jonathan did do all those things. You're right. And technically speaking, he is guilty. But there's just one thing. I was already put on trial for this man 2,000 years ago. And I don't know if you, any of you remember, but I already paid the debt. I already served the sentence. Okay? And guess what? If he calls me Lord, newsflash, the defense attorney is Jesus. Okay? If he calls me Lord, that means he is found in me. His identity is in me. And if I'm innocent and he's in me, that means he is now innocent. And if I already paid the debt, he does not have to. I rest my case. He sits down. The decision is unanimous. The judge pounds the gavel, declares you a free man. You have been acquitted or justified. See, redemption made it literally impossible for you to lose in court ever again. But we have to know what redemption is, what it entails, and what the blood of Jesus purchased for us. Again, if we don't know those things, we'll be living life in the jar Right? Even though we're free, it's like you unlock the jail cell, you open the door, and you continue to live in it and have a pity party. It's not, it's what a lot of Christians are doing. You got to understand, there's been a jailbreak. God has set you free. Amen. So, you can't lose in court ever again. Not only does the blood of Jesus testify for us, but Jesus himself is our advocate, he's our defense attorney. And you want to know something else? He's actually the judge. John 5, says that the Father has assigned all judgment to the Son. So Jesus is your judge, and he's your defense. He's your king, and he's your priest. Amen? So the king is one who had supreme authority. He's the one who executes the law. The priest in Old Testament times, is the one who oversaw the sacrifices for atonement to make them righteous for a period of time, right? They were to mandate, they were to or mediate, and they were to intercede on behalf of God and his people. The king executed the law. The priest was an intercessor and a mediator between God and man, right? The king reigned, established the law. The priest was uh, overseeing the righteousness of Israel, atoning for their sins, okay? 
Jesus is both of those things. He's king and he's priest. But to understand this, I keep spitting. You have to come, you have to go way back in time to the most mysterious person there ever was in the Bible, Melchizedek. All right, and this is where it gets really good. I'm going to take another drink. Melchizedek. We will call him Mysterious Mel because there's nothing we really know about him. There's like 10 verses about him in the Bible, but he is crucial in understanding this. He is crucial to Jesus being king and Jesus being priest. All right, Mysterious Mel. He's a type and a shadow of the Messiah who was to come. Genesis 14, 18. <clears throat> Man, I, I should not sing on nights that I'm teaching. All right, somebody write that down. What's that? Genesis 14, 18. Then Melchizedek, mysterious Mel, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. So he was king over Salem, which is later referred to as Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem, king of Salem. So he was the king of Jerusalem, okay? And he was high priest. Um, his name contains two Hebrew words. You break it down. The first word is Melchi, comes from the uh, Hebrew word Malek, which means king or to rule and reign. The second word is the word Zedek, which means righteousness, to make right or to justify. That was the ministry of the priest, right? So put those two words together. You have king and priest. You have king of righteousness. It's what the name Melchizedek means, king of righteousness. And here's where it gets really, really interesting. So according to the Mosaic law of Israel, the law that was established when Moses was on the earth, Right? According to the Mosaic law, these two things had to be separate. There was the king and there was the priest. In fact, they were divided uh, uh, by lineage. The king came from the house of David, is the lineage of David. That's the, 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 the royalty um, of Israel. Every king came from the house of David. The priests came from the lineage of the house of Aaron. All right? So if you were a priest, you were from the house of Aaron. If you were to be king, you were from the house of David. You could not be both. The king and the priest could not intermingle. The palace and the temple could not be one thing. But Melchizedek was both because he was actually uh, in. He he was actually living before the Mosaic temple or the Mosaic law. So those rules did not apply to him. He was king and he was also priest. Am I making sense right now? Okay. So um, the palace and the temple could never be joined. Um, but Melchizedek lived before that time, and he actually gives his blessing to Abraham. And that's where we get both lines, the, the lineage of David, the lineage of Aaron, okay? And basically everybody else. Um, so it's prophesied in Psalm 110, verse 4, that the Messiah, Jesus, would restore the priesthood once again. And this is actually God talking um, about Jesus because um, it says, if you go at the very beginning of it, it says, and the Lord said to my Lord. So it's God saying to my Lord Jesus. It's prophetic. It says this, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest. He's talking about Jesus. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The order of Melchizedek being both king and priest. Okay? So David is prophesying about Jesus. But Jesus could not be born of both houses. If you know your research, Jesus was born from the house of David. He was not born from the house of Aaron, which means Jesus was the rightful king of Israel, but he was not the rightful priest. And it was prophesied that he would be both. So how do these two things be reconciled? Okay, The, the only way this could be reconciled is if the blessing of the priesthood would be transferred upon Jesus once again. And so, so in order to understand this, we got to go back to where Jesus first started his ministry. And uh, he was being baptized in the Jordan River. Let's fast forward to when his ministry began. He came to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. Okay? John actually wants to be baptized by Jesus. But Jesus says, no, John 3, verse 15, he says, permit it to be so. Uh, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Right? That word righteousness is that word zedek. 
to fulfill righteousness was to fulfill the prophecy in Psalm 110, verse 4, to fulfill the order of Melchizedek. So he's saying, I need to be baptized right now so I can receive the blessing of the priesthood once again so I can fulfill the order of Melchizedek, which means being king and being priest. Here's where it gets extremely interesting. John who was his dad? Zechariah. Zechariah was the high priest of Israel. Their family came from the lineage of the house of Aaron. In fact, John the Baptist was the last and rightful high priest of Israel. He was. And just like Melchizedek gave the blessing to Abraham, this point in time was so monumental when Jesus was baptized because not only was he being prepared for ministry, it was a transfer of the priesthood back to Jesus, fulfilling the order of Melchizedek once again. The rightful priest of Israel gave his blessing and baptized Jesus, transferred the priesthood. He is your king. He is your priest. Amen. So the priest's job in the Old Testament was to identify the spotless lamb. John 1.29, the next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the lamb of God who takes on the sin of the world. Right? And in the house of Aaron to prepare the next priest for ministry, what would they do? They would wash them, they would put holy garments on them, and they would anoint them with oil. John the, bapti John the Baptist baptized Jesus. He brought him out. And what happened? God the Father descended. The Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove. And he anointed him and prepared him for the ministry of the priesthood. Jesus is your king and your priest. He is your judge, the one who executes the law, and your defense, the one who advocates and fights on your behalf. He is your judge. He is your defense, right? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why? Because Jesus liberated us, liberated us from the law of sin and death. He set us free because he is our judge and he is also our defense. Amen? Come on. Revelation 5.9, going back to that, it says that we have been made kings and priests. Listen, I was looking online. There's people who take tests. Am I a king or am I a priest? Right? You're both, okay? You are both. Listen, if you are born again, which means now your identity is found in Jesus, which means your lineage is in Jesus. If Jesus is a king and a priest and you can enjoy the rights and the benefits that he has, you are a king and a priest. Or I should say queen and priestess, right? You are those two things. God has given us the authority. What does the Bible say? Jesus says, behold, I've given you the keys to the kingdom. Keys represent authority. He's saying, I've given you authority to execute my law on the earth, to execute law, to execute power and authority over the enemy. And you are also a priest, which means that you get to intercede between God and men. You get to bring people into the kingdom. That's what the work of salvation is all about. You as a priest get to bring those who are lost and dying and bring them to God. You get to rule over the enemy, rule in this earth and bring people to Jesus. You are a king you are a priest. Jesus is your king. Jesus is your priest. I rest my case. Amen. Whew. And that's that. I'm about to lose my voice. Redemption. Man, and there's still so much more to learn about this subject. I hope that I have helped you understand it a little bit more. My goal is to help you live beyond the jar. Stop hitting a lid that isn't there. The lid's been taken off. The jail cell has been opened. You, by the blood of Jesus, have been set free. He went into the slave market. He bought you out, and he set you in high places with him. You reign and you rule. You're a king. You're a priest. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is. Uh, you said that your word, the, the entrance of your word brings forth light. It brings forth revelation. I pray that something that was spoken tonight would bring forth revelation in the hearts of those who hear it, Father God, that we would, leave, we would live lives that are worthy of what you've purchased for us, Father God, that we wouldn't live in the jail cell. We'd live out. Uh, we would live as kings and priests um, unto our God, and we would bring others into the kingdom, Lord Jesus. I pray, I thank you for your blood that bought us, redeemed us, it washes us, it makes us clean. Thank you, Lord. We love you, we honor you, we praise you, we magnify you for what you've done, what you're doing, what you will continue to do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you guys. Um,
remember there's prayer tomorrow night, um, 7 o'clock here, come. And then there's prayer on Saturday, 7 o'clock, come. And we also have Take 10 throughout the week. So uh, tune into Facebook, uh, our page, New Creation Church, Glenwood Springs, um, for an encouraging word and some prayer um, at lunchtime. All right, you guys can stand up with me. You can say this as we go. What God did in Christ Jesus far exceeds any damage done to me by Adam's fall. It means something a little different now when I say that. It's so good. All right, you guys can be dismissed. Thank you.